Welcome back to Stem Fatale, your women in science history podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Emlyn Gremlin. And I'm your uh, other co-host, Dr. Emma Dilemma. <laughs> Again, you know, not our last names. Just throwing that out there. Not our last names. Nope. For anyone listening. And um, I don't know. We always have our, our banter before, so then I'm, I'm left dry. <laughs> yeah, we always talk for a while. It's hard to know if anyone else would want to listen to it. Probably not parts of it, just because they're very like, <laughs> oh, I'm going to my garden. It's like, whatever. Uh, I guess. But yes. What, what, what big thing has happened to you? We'll do a summary. Quick sum. Anything? You know, we planted some tomatoes and peppers and potatoes that someone in our community garden gave nice. us. And, um, you know, just been hanging with the kittens who are cute as ever. I love it. Yeah. What's your big uh, big news for the week? I bleached the loving crap oh, yes. out of my hair. And now I look like Daenerys Targaryen. Yes. And I'm digging you it. You are the Khaleesi of our pod. Yes, I am the mother of dragons. It looks awesome, I think. I And you know what? I won't see anybody in person probably for a while, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> it's just, it's for me. It's not for you. <laughs> Anyways. Exactly, exactly. So who, yeah. are we, who are we talking about today, Emma? Well, so... World Bee Day was on May 20th of this week. (laughs) And so in honor of that, I wanted to discuss a nuclear physicist turned bee expert, Eva Crane. Yes. (laughs) Have you ever heard of her? No. I've been wanting to um, cover her for a while, but was just kind of waiting for the right moment, I guess. This is the right moment. (laughs) Exactly. The 20th is B-Day? Yeah, May 20th is World B-Day, or International B-Day. That was my um, dissertation defense anniversary. (gasps) Oh my gosh, on Mm B-Day. On (laughs) B-Day. I wish I worked on bees. That would have been more fitting. Yeah. (laughs) I work on other social organisms, so. Yeah, that works. It's the same. It's the same. (laughs) Um, Okay, so let's go. Yeah. So, Eva Crane was born as Ethel Eva Widowson in London, England, on June 12th in 1912. And growing up, she lived with her parents and her sister, Elsie, who actually her sister would go on to become a well-known nutritionist and scientist, and perhaps we can discuss her another time. Everything I read said that she is as interesting as Eva, so that's pretty cool. (laughs) But also, what a strange, like, I don't know, my siblings as interesting as Yeah. (laughs) It's like a strange comparison. 
basic they both traveled a lot and they both nice. loved adventures i think and so Ooh. yeah i love um, a good adventure yeah okay as a child, Eva was often quite ill, but she entertained herself a lot by reading, writing, and drawing, and eventually she enrolled in a secondary school called Sindaham School in London, where mm-hmm. um, the teachers there were mostly women and were really interested in, you know, girls' education, which was pretty cool for the time, the early 1900s. Yeah. And she was, she got good enough grades in high school that upon graduation, she received a scholarship to attend King's College and study mathematics. Hmm. And so when she enrolled in King's College in 1930, she was one of two women studying math at the university, which is... Oh, nice. I mean, nice for her. Yes. Maybe not for (laughs) everything else, but that's awesome. Yeah, just kind of... Um, par for the course with a lot of our the ladies that we talk about. Yep. And she received her bachelor's. Okay, this is Emlyn. Brace yourself here. Okay. Okay. Tell me. She received her bachelor's in mathematics in 1932. So that's two years after she enrolled. She then received another bachelor's in physics in 1933. What? She- she then received a master's in quantum mechanics in 1935 <laughs> and a PhD in nuclear physics in 1937. <laughs> Jesus. This so, woman is on a roll. Yeah. And the time it took me to get one PhD, she got two <laughs> bachelor's degrees, a master's degree, and a PhD, which is insane. That's wow. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't don't know how that happened. I mean, everything I read said, you know, she was really, really sharp and intelligent. All of her teachers loved her. um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, and supported her, you know. And I guess, you know, getting a PhD then was sort of different than it is now. Um, And degrees, you know, getting any degree was a little bit different, but... Mm-hmm. Even still, that's very impressive. <laughs> yeah, I'm impressed. So let's see. I tried to find out some stuff about her master's and like PhD work, though I didn't get too far into it since the crux of her kind of impact is all in the B world, which is like so funny, such a big <laughs> transition, but she wasn't quite there yet. Yeah. Um, But I I looked up a bit about what she did. So for her master's in quantum mechanics, she studied the molecular structure of things kind of in the frameworks of quantum mechanics and spectroscopy. You know, I don't know what that means. (laughs) I did. (laughs) She also, um, oh yeah, she also taught courses during this time and took courses in teaching So she was, like, getting trained to be a teacher while getting her master's. And um, she also, at the time, co-authored... This was, like, a really weird one-off thing. She co-authored a paper on periodicity in women. (laughs) Ooh. (laughs) Which is actually... Not the physics periods. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But how women 
like behave differently when they're on their periods. <laughs> Which Interesting. was a weird one-off thing, very of its time, I think. Yeah. And uh-huh. never followed up on again. Not part of her physics work at all. Just kind of, you know, a strange little a little thing that she did at that time. You know, we've all got those. Yeah. We've all got those one-off right. papers. Yeah. A project where you're like, sure, I'll help. And then you're just like, eh, it's just, <laughs> I guess I'm part of this project now. <laughs> um, but her PhD, which followed, was made up of two projects. And w- so one was titled The Application of the Absorption Method to the Determination of the Upper Limits of Beta Ray Spectra from Induced Radioactive Elements. So... She studied, like, radioactive elements and their absorptions. Um, And then the second part of her PhD was the interchange of PB++ ions in solution with ions of a radioactive isotope of PB in the solid phase. So very, yeah, just very, like, physics, physics heavy, like, kind of. Physical chemistry. Yeah. yeah. Pretty physics heavy. Mm-hmm. Man, nuclear, like, all things have to do with radioactivity back in the day. I'm like, were you wearing yeah, scary. protective gear? Right. How are your cells? And have they mutated? Are you okay? And, like, during this time, so she was always kind of getting sick growing up, but it was, I read uh-huh. that she was also feeling not so great around this time. And I was like, maybe it's from the radioactive elements that you're working yep. with. Um, but she wasn't just working hard during this time. She would often travel with friends, staying in hostels in Ireland, bicycling through the mountains in Germany. And when her sister got a car, they would go on long drives through different European countrysides, like in pretty rugged areas, too. Um, Sounds so nice. Yeah. I would like to go anywhere right now. I know, right? I was. She goes to a lot of cool places, and I'm just like, man, <laughs> it sounds so fun. So traveling, crazy, yeah. So I don't know how long this lasted since World War II is about to begin. You know, she graduated with her PhD in 1937, so World War II mm-hmm. was only a couple years away. Um, But it's just to say that from a young age, she had this great interest in traveling and traveling to remote or difficult to get to places. And it kind of just came naturally to her, you know? Yeah. So let's see. Over the next eight or nine years during the war and right after, she held lecture positions in physics, um, first at Hull University and then at Sheffield University. And Mm -hmm. during this time, she also completed research projects. Like, for a little while, she was working on a study investigating electric potentials and how they differed across different parts of the human body. And she continued to study molecular films, co-authoring multiple studies that were published in Nature. So she had... Yeah, so a lot of... It was actually hard for me to find this information on her physics side, but she was like a pretty <laughs> intense, like physical scientist for 10, yeah. 10 to 15 years. 
Um, during this time in 1942, she got married to James Alfred Crane, who worked mostly as a stockbroker, but was also part of the English Navy Reserve during the war. And okay, interesting. It is rumored that for a wedding present, they were given a colony of honeybees. And Ooh, the reason for the That's a great present. Yeah, and part of the reason why people think they were given this is that there was a national sugar shortage in England due to the war. Mm. And so this uh-huh. was like could have been a good way to make up for that. Um, yeah, a little self-sufficiency. Yeah. Like victory, kind of like victory gardens. Yeah, exactly. But of the bee variety. Yeah. However, one thing I read said that there's actually evidence she had become interested in bees and bought some beehives prior to the wedding, and that Mm -hmm. that's why she was given this gift, like to add to her growing collection. But around this time is when she started learning about bees. And let's see. And the birds and the bees. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Well, I guess yes, because she got married. Oh, we don't need to. It's 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 not. It of took our me business. a second. <laughs> as soon as I said it, I was like, "It's none of my business." <laughs> keep going. <sighs> okay. Years later, she would say, "It wasn't the bees I was attracted to at all. I am a scientist, and I wanted to know how they worked." So. I don't know. I feel like bees are just very interesting, though, you know, because of their sociality Mm -hmm. and, like, their honey-making. They're very unique creatures. Their collective behavior Mm -hmm. also, probably. Yeah. Um, In 19... But still, at this point, she was pursuing the physical, like, biophysics world. In 1945, she received a position in the lab of H.A. Krebs, who was a, you know, famous biologist. And she studied, in that lab, she studied the biological physics of anatomical things like gastric secretions. And I think Hmm. she was working with frogs at this time. So, let's see... Yeah, here's, like, the title of one of her papers. She was studying the relations between hydrochloric acid secretion and electrical phenomena and frog gastric mucosa, which is just, like... Okay. Her study is really ran the gamut up until... Yeah. Yeah. And... So she's getting into, like, physic, like the physics and chemistry of bi- biological organisms. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And in total, she published about 20 papers in quantum mechanics and biophysics before transitioning completely to bee research, which is a pretty, like, successful career in and of itself (laughs) before she (laughs) basically started a whole new life, you know? Um, Because, so on the side, she had become more and more interested in bees, subscribing to beekeeping magazines and joining her local beekeeping society, becoming the secretary pretty rapidly after joining. In 1945, so this is the same year she began this position in the other lab, she actually published her first articles on bees, which were in the wine and food magazine. And one was about mead and one was about honey and and they're really okay. cool. If you go to this website called Eva Crane Trust, you can read most of her papers. 
And oh, cool. these ones have recipes. At least the honey one had like a cake recipe, like things you can use <laughs> honey in, which is really like, were people not using honey? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so that's, I, I love that. Yeah. So that was her first articles on bees, published on bees, were about like kind of using honey in, in food. Okay. By 1949, though, she turned her full attention to studying bees. And she did this by founding the Bee Research Association, which is now known as the International Bee Research Association. But she founded this um, association essentially with the aim of building an international hub of bee research. So... You know, and going to these society, beekeeping society meetings and and reading magazines, I think she discovered that there's a long history of beekeeping around the world and different cultures have different relationships with bees. And I think she just wanted to know everything about them. Yeah. And that's interesting to start like a foundation when you've just started a new discipline. Yeah. I mean, maybe she'd been thinking about it for a lot longer than she'd been publishing, but that's just like, it's kind of ballsy and I love it. Yeah. And yeah, she had begun traveling too and researching everything about bees and honey making around the world. And she was especially interested in human relationships with bees, the history of beekeeping and honey harvesting or honey hunting, she's, she called it. And about the diversity of bees in the world. And I'll mention some specific trips she took, but, you know, just throughout her lifetime, she traveled very extensively in an effort to not only collect knowledge on bees and beekeeping practices, but also in an effort to share knowledge and help others learn about bees. And that's kind of what she's most known for, is just creating this, like, new community of bee researchers and beekeepers and helping them all exchange information. I love that. And many of her her travels were funded by beekeeping societies she was a part of or by beekeepers in other parts of the world that were inviting her to give lectures on beekeeping, even in these early years in the 19... like a few years after she had started beekeeping. So she kind of made a name for herself really quickly, which is... Yeah, I wonder if it was just a very uncommon thing, actually, yeah, at that time. I'm I'm not really sure. It just I think she might have just been so curious that she really mm-hmm. made an effort to, like, reach out to people pretty rapidly to learn more. And just built a lot of, like, relationships around the world really quickly. Okay. Yeah. In 1950, she became editor of a journal-slash-magazine that was called Bee World, and she began including research from other countries in the journal. So, like, when she would travel, people would tell her things, she would write about it, or they would give her their papers to publish in this journal. And the journal received so many submissions that she soon after had to start an additional journal called Apicultural Abstracts, which is apiculture is the study, is just beekeeping, I think, or the study of beekeeping. 
And so apicultural abstracts featured more shorter summaries of international bee research. And with this journal, she aimed to have a place where both individual beekeepers and researchers could share their knowledge of bees. And she would often publish her own travel records in both of these journals and magazines where she described different bees, flowers, honey, beekeeping practices, etc. And more that she observed abroad. Um, in 1955, her husband Jim resi- resigned from the Navy Reserve and took another position in London. So they moved there. They bought a big house with gardens that they would um, go on to spend the rest of their lives in. But a large part of this house slowly became overtaken by Eva's workspace for the Bee Research <laughs> Association. <laughs> uh huh. So she actually hired a number of part-time workers to start helping her uh, edit, compile, review, translate, print, and publish all the research and information that they would receive on bees. And she... That's such a crazy amount of work. Yeah. She essentially built an information science center for international bee research in her home (laughs) in 1955. (laughs) And um, in the startup, sorry, Jim. I know you wanted to have like a man cave, but we're actually this just is my printing press yeah. and my bees, exactly. my translators. Um, <laughs> and in the start, at least, most of the people that worked for her were women, and she let them work flex uh, flexible hours since most of them were working mothers, which was just kind of mm-hmm. a a nice. I don't know. It's just like. What happens when women hire other women? <laughs> it's yep. a nice place to work for women, usually. Yep. These So her journals and her research associate, association became so successful, partly because of Eva's travels where she made so many contacts, um, that by the end of 1955, the association had mostly members from outside of England. Like 53% of the members were international. And they had over four tons of archived publications and other materials, such that Eva had to ask some of her employees to store papers in their houses. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. By 1960, like five years later, Eva was pretty well-known internationally, but some university scientists were apprehensive about publishing in B-World since it wasn't mm-hmm. a academic peer-reviewed journal, you know, it, since anyone could kind of publish in it as long as their yeah. stuff was legitimate, right? Mm-hmm. So, therefore, Eva proposed that a new journal be started for scientists only, and so the B-Research community banded together and started the journal the Journal for Apicultural Research in 1962 with Eva as the editor. And this is actually still the kind of premier or one of the premier bee research journals today. Um, And that's awesome. Yeah. She was editor of this journal for almost 20 years and all of her journals and magazines did a lot for increasing access to bee research and the spread of international uh, bee knowledge. <laughs> uh, I don't, yeah, that was my international bee knowledge. Sounds dumb, but it's the truth. Okay. 
let's see. So here's like one of sort of the direct impacts of her own research and travels, which honestly, like she, she published almost 300 papers during, (laughs) and all of them just had kind of unique observations on bees or honey making. Yeah. So I couldn't include everything, but like, um, a couple articles I came across said that, so when she traveled to a coastal town in Russia around 1962, um, while there, she wrote about how the honeybees in that region were more resistant to a parasitic mite called Varroa, um, more resistant than their European counterparts, which are the same species, uh. but different strains, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so, for those unfamiliar with bees or honeybees, varroa mites can be pretty deadly. So, they attach to individuals in a colony and feed on their fat, and they'll kill off, like, colonies if there are enough of them. Enough of the mites in the colony. And so, they weren't super common in western populations of honeybees until bees started getting shipped around the world and yeah being kept colonies were like kind of raised together and stuff they they were just spread a lot more so once it started showing up in honeybee colonies in the u.s and destroying them Mm -hmm. this is in the 1980s this is 20 years later beekeepers were on the lookout for a solution and they came across her older observations that there was this group of honeybees in Russia that were resistant to the mites or more resistant than oh. other bees. And so they shipped some specifically to Louisiana where the problem had gotten really bad and it actually gotcha. like solved the problem for quite some time. Um, wow. Yeah. And so that was just one example of how her observations and willingness to document all of her observations meticulously like led to kind of a a big impact on bee the bee community okay that's awesome one of my um one of the postdocs uh where i work works on bee disease and works on varroa oh cool i wonder if he's heard about her i bet he has she's i think she's pretty famous with bee people yeah okay but you should ask him too because if he doesn't he should know about her exactly yeah i don't think he's gonna listen to our podcast (laughs) so (laughs) um that's fine it's fine whatever with us uh (laughs) but that's awesome yeah that sounds like some people discredit all of the observational work, but those right. pieces are fundamental at the beginning when you're getting like a baseline of understanding. And often, yeah. like getting all of these data points across a large landscape can give you this valuable information that you don't realize it's useful for quite a while. But it, like, they wouldn't right. have known if she hadn't, you know, 20 years previously gone and made that little note. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, or you can, like, see patterns around the world of certain things, you know, with enough observations. Um, Yeah, so she was really, she became kind of like, she didn't, I don't think she ever experimented on bees in that sense. 
but she wanted she kind of became like a bee historian and information scientist and archivist of bee information mm-hmm. that really like was an essential contribution to the field of bees, which is just like, you know, we have such a weird relationship with bees as humans. Yeah, I think her impact is just really large for that reason. That's so cool. And it's also so interesting that so late, like relatively late in her career, she was just like, and now I'm going to be famous for this thing. Like, I'm changing gears. Yeah. This is my new passion. Yeah. I like these stories because often it's like, it's never too late to find a new passion. You're never trapped. Right, yeah. Like, um, like Inez started doing, like, botany when she was, right, like, 50-something? Yeah. 50? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's never too late, man. It's never too late. I could still find my passion. <laughs> no, no. Science has... I found it, I think. <laughs> okay. That's amazing. So, yeah, that was just one... So that was in 1962 that she observed that. Um, In 1966, the Bee Research Association had outgrown her house. (laughs) And so she began Mm -hmm. fundraising to get it its its own building. And, you know, they eventually raised enough money and um, were able to move the house to a place, another house, sorry, move the the association to another house nearby. And yeah, around the same time, she and her husband bought a vacation house in Ireland, which (laughs) I don't know, some article included this. I was like, that sounds awesome. It was surrounded by hills, greenery and the sea. And they would often kind of go there to relax, which I'm just like, what is your life? It sounds like so much fun. Yeah. It sounds so good. You like wander around Make notes about bees. Right. I mean, I'm sure it was a lot of hard work, but it sounds like a pretty good yeah. life. Um, in 1967, she had a pretty big... So I'm not going to list every country she ever traveled to, but this is just an idea uh-huh. of what one year in her life was like. In 1967, okay. Eva traveled to the U.S., Kenya, Australia, India, Hong Kong, and Mauritius. So like every continent, (laughs) she's in Europe. Yeah, Mauritius seems like a very strange South America. Yeah, right. So, and while in Australia, she toured much of the country, um, and letting beekeepers there know that people abroad preferred milder honeys, which led to changes in practices and marketing in Australian beekeeping that would eventually increase their market shares dramatically in the following years. So just another way she was sort of, she like impacted not only honeybee research, like behavior or biologists, but also like, you know, people who were growing honey for profit. And yeah. Mm -hmm. In 1975, she published her first book titled Honey, a Comprehensive Survey. Let's see. In 1978, Jim passed away. Her husband passed away suddenly, which was definitely very sad for Eva. Um, She never remarried and they never had children, but she would spend 
much of her time with her sister Elsie, who also loved to travel. Yep. So at least she had this nice. like nice friend and partner in life. In 1983, she published The Archaeology of Beekeeping, and this is the same year that she retired officially. In 1986, though, okay, she officially retired, but unofficially never retired, (laughs) which is also true. I know some of those. In 1986, other people at the Bee Research Association kind of took over from her, which I think was sort of a sad transitional time for her, but I think it it was mm-hmm. time for... I think she even said, yeah. like, it was time for other people to run it, people with new technologies and everything. Um, and this actually gave her a lot of time to do other things, like writing up a bunch of her work, which we'll talk about in a second. And so when they took over the Bee Research Association, they moved it from the house it had been in for 20 years at that point. But she stayed on to advise on any matters if needed. And it should be noted that, yeah, in this time that she edited three journals and ran the Bee Research Association, she was essentially able to collect and archive almost 600,000 articles on apiculture. You know, some of which were her own, 300 of which were her own, but mostly from other people. So that's just to get an idea for how much information she was really collecting and sharing. Okay. So many papers. Yeah. Stresses me out. So... (laughs) Yeah, so she was not done working. In 1991, she published Bees and Beekeeping, Science, Practice, and World Resources, which was almost 700 pages. (laughs) Oh, boy. Some light reading. And she was still traveling extensively, you know, being invited by people to come check out their beekeeping and bees and just for fun, I think. In 1992, for example, she traveled to Vietnam, where she encouraged women there to start keeping and harvesting honey from local bees. And soon Hmm. after that, Vietnamese beekeepers were producing and exporting more honey than ever before. I don't know if they were originally keeping, like, European bees or something. You know, like, just Apis mellifera, the... European honeybee, but let's see. In 1999, she published another huge book, The World History of Beekeeping and Honey Hunting, which is also Mm -hmm. almost 700 pages. (laughs) And it's considered still to be one of the premier books on beekeeping and apiculture. In 2001, she published another book, which is called The Rock Art of Honey Hunters, in which she writes about and includes images of honey-related rock art from over 170 archaeological sites around the world. She's got her hands in every type of bee situation. Yeah, exactly. Like, I think she was fascinated, I think, by every aspect of bees, you know? Which is, though maybe not as much by their biology. Like a little bit more about human relationships with bees than their 
biology, but she still talked about their biology a little bit. In 2003, she published, uh, it's not quite a memoir, but it is a book detailing some of her many travels, and it's called Making a Beeline. Uh, It's called Making a Beeline, (laughs) My Journey in 60 Countries from 1949 to 2000. And so over 50 (laughs) years. All over the place. In which she just details her, her many different travels throughout Europe, but also further abroad, and in many cases to remote places abroad where she would travel via dugout, canoe, light aircraft, or dog sleds to learn more about local How beekeeping practices. How have I never heard of this lady? I know, right? She's crazy. Every time, like, most ladies we talk about, I'm like, how has this happened? Yeah, I, how do I not know about them? I really want to read this book. I was like, oh, man, I wish I had, like, thought to do her a little bit sooner. But it sounds <laughs> like there's a lot of fun stories in it. Yeah. And, yeah, and these travels obviously led her to make such unique or to make very unique observations and connections between different cultures around the world. So, for instance, in a very remote part of Pakistan, she discovered that beekeepers there used similar practices to those she had seen depicted in archaeological sites in ancient Greece. So she's like looking at paintings of beekeeping from ancient Greece and realized that people in Pakistan are using similar methods to like harvest honey and keep bees. Yeah. In all, she published, uh, yeah, I already sort of said this, but in all, she published 370 of her own publications throughout her lifetime and collected over, personally collected over 2,000 artifacts from beekeepers around the world, which are all now part of the International Bee Research Association Historical Collection. Oh, cool. Nice. That'd be so cool to see all of the different ways like, yeah. around the world that people, uh, you know, cultivate bees. Right. So, yeah, in that sense, it's weird because I keep thinking it's like in some ways she's like an archaeologist and in other ways she's a historian. And it's just all this cool kind of integrative. I don't know. She's just a cool lady. Yeah. Um, she passed away in 2007 at the age of 95, donating most of her estate to the Eva Crane Trust, which is a charity that she started to aimed at increasing an understanding of bees and beekeeping, and which gives out grants to those that are interested in starting apicultural projects, even, yeah, until today. Yeah, still. So, yeah, and that's the story of Eva Crane. That's amazing. Yeah. I loved that. She's really cool. Um, Yeah, she seems awesome. I do love a good traveler. Yeah. And, like, seems so foundational for getting a lot of different journals up and running and getting this collecting of data and sharing of information about beekeeping. It's just very interesting. Yeah, I think... You know, there are a lot of, like, seminal people in bee research that I've heard about Mm -hmm. as a biologist. But in terms of, yeah, really getting the bee community into this kind of collaborative 
people have been studying bees for a really long time, right? Not necessarily from a scientific perspective, but also like for honey and in different cultural practices. And so she kind of brought together all these worlds, I think, of like scientists and non-scientists to kind of, yeah, create this collective place where they could exchange information. So anyway, she's pretty awesome. Amazing. Yeah. I loved it. Welcome back. This is our section where we give out shout outs to badass ladies making history today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've got a thematic <gasps> one with yours. Oh my god, really? I love when we It's also converge. about bees. <gasps> no way. Oh my god. Uh-huh. Is it because so of Is it because of World Bee Day? No. <laughs> It's completely random. That's crazy. I love when this happens. That's awesome. Yeah, I know. This is the... This it's is perfect. unbelievable. That's per- oh, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. That's all I got. That's my only... <laughs> That's all. I can't okay. believe it. Yeah, same you thing. Oh, I just really. can't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, what? Are you still there? Yeah, I was trying to think of more puns, and then I just started, like, saying gobbledygook. Like, just saying the different consonants, seeing if anything worked. Just be cool, Evelyn. Just be cool. We're just going to stick with the B one. Yeah, yeah. Because it works. I think so. All right. So, my shout-out goes to... I. I'm going to preface this with, I might butcher this this name, but I'll try. Okay. Uh, so our shout out this week goes to Dr. Fotini Pashalidu, uh, a researcher from the National Research Institute for Agriculture, and Harriet Lambert, uh, a PhD student in biocommunication. Wow. Um, at one of the universities in Switzerland. I forgot to write it down. Oh, no. It's fine. <laughs> Um, and both of them co-first authored a paper that came out in Science this week about mm. bees. Oh my gosh, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. <laughs> <laughs> so their work uh, focuses on bumblebees, oh. and they show that when pollen is scarce, so when pollen, I guess, is the protein so only protein source for bees, so when pollen is scarce... The bees will bite and damage leaves on plants, which causes the plants to accelerate their flower production. Whoa. So they're manipulating their environment and kind of like cultivating like a food source, essentially. That is really interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah, so this all started when they noticed that bumblebees were damaging plants in an unrelated experiment that they were doing. Oh, okay. And they were like, okay, why are the bees doing this? Yeah. They thought maybe the bees are like using the leaf material that they're biting to use in their nest, or maybe they're feeding on it um, for sustenance. But they also knew that plants... Uh, when they knew that uh, stress can induce plants to flower right, earlier okay. than usual. Mm-hmm. And so then they wondered, well, may- are these bees trying to induce the plants to bloom? 
That was like this big opening yeah. question. So in order to test this, they placed pollen-deprived bees in with tomato and mustard plants. And what they noticed was that the bees quickly cut holes in the leaves of the plants with their <gasps> mandibles and proboscis... Proboscises? Proboscis. Proboscis. Wow, I've never... Proboscises. That's like one of right? those... Yeah, that's one of those words that in my head I say it correctly, but now that I try to say it out loud, proboscis. Proboscis? You know what I mean. Yeah. The multiple proboscis. Their tongue. It's like their tongue. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, so they, they cut the leaves of these plants, and so then they also came in manually and cut separate plants with scissors to kind of mimic what the bees were doing. Wow. Oh, I see, so to have, see if the plants flowered. Yeah, yeah, so they're doing this to determine if the, it's just the physical manipulation of the plants right. that's causing pot- potentially a, a change in flowering, or if there's some chemical secreted by the bees that might be causing oh, this yeah. accelerated flowering. Cool. So trying to disentangle those two things. Yeah, that makes sense. So they found that both the, the plants that were bee-cut and scissor-cut had accelerated flowering and bloomed faster, but that the bee, the ones, the plants that were cut with the bees, the bee cut (laughs) plants, flowered weeks earlier (gasps) than the ones that were cut with scissors. Oh, so maybe it's both. Yeah. So it's definitely, there's some physical manipulation that's stressing the plants, but there's also seems to be some chemical that the bees produce in their saliva that is altering the flowering process and accelerating how fast these plants start flowering. That's so exciting. Yeah. So this is like a crazy, I feel like this is crazy that no one's noticed this before. It's one Mm -hmm. of those like simple observations that then leads to this huge understanding of, you know, how bees are actually interacting with their environment and manipulating their environment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, they, even brought these bees or similar bees out into the field and found that if the nearby flowers were not flowering, so the bees could go forage farther away to flowering plants, but the plants around the hive were not flowering, then the bees would still cut those close flowers, inducing the like neighboring flowers or the neighboring plants to start flowering earlier. Wow. That's really remarkable. I know. So all this work suggests a lot of things. But for one thing, it suggests that this behavior may be adaptive, providing these bees with a way to cultivate their environment and provide themselves with more resources. Um, So manipulate their environment to increase their fitness. Um, It also has implications for... Phenology and climate change suggesting that, like, we're finding more and more occasions where, you know, when bees need a lot of food, when they're, you know, increasing their colony size or their brood size, and when plants flower, maybe originally had matched up, but due to climate change, we're getting this um, mismatch between mm-hmm. when flowers are coming and when the right. bees need the foraging food. And so this could provide an avenue for bees to kind of adapt to um, any type of 
uh, phenological phenological mismatch. Yeah, that they might run into. Wow, what a cool study! And I'm I'm actually surprised nobody's. I mean, maybe people have observed that behavior before, but never tested why they do that or something. That's really odd. Or maybe they've just started doing it more, more recently, which is how they could observe it. Yeah, Yeah. it's hard to know. Yeah. But I I think this was a lab experiment where they noticed it, so... Right, right. I don't know. Yeah, and it's hard to raise bees in the lab and... um, I mean, you can raise colonies, but it's not always easy to watch bees foraging, right? Like, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. in the lab. So that's really interesting. Wow, what a cool study! And I really yeah, just I still it was- think it's cool <laughs> that we both <laughs> talked about bee people. I know, I love it. It's, yeah. it's um, Worked it's up. a weirdly thematic episode. <laughs> yeah. Like, it made sense when we both picked things about coronavirus, because right. it was like, yeah, I mean, it's topical. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love it. I love it, too. All those bee people out there will either love this episode or hate it. <laughs> yeah, they'll be like, actually, like... <laughs> <laughs> you got this all wrong. Uh, yeah. We're we'll doing see. our best. We'll let us know, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, I mean, or not. No, yeah. you can let us know. Uh, Thank you for tuning in. If you liked this episode, please rate, review, subscribe. Helps us out. Helps us find more people. Yeah. We read them all and we love them and it makes our day during these trying times where I have very little to look forward to. A review would be very nice for my (laughs) mental. Just one, you know. Just one. So yeah, thank you for listening. Please share and subscribe. And... As always, thank you so much to Caitlin Friesen for the awesome art. Thank you to Artichoke for our theme music. And you can go stimulate stimulate yourself. yourself. (laughs) Okay, bye. (laughs)